Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Now, live and direct from the press box at Old Comiskey Park, it's time for When Football Was Football. Let's join your host, Joe Ziemba, with another forgotten tale from Chicago's pro football history. Let's go! Thank you for that warm introduction, and we are indeed glad to be back in the cozy confines of the old Comiskey Park press box for this episode of When Football Was Football. I'm your host, Joe Ziemba. Some may describe it as a betrayal. Others might simply consider it as a wonderful business opportunity. In reality, it prompted a rash of hard feelings that eventually shattered the trusted business partnership between two legendary NFL pioneers. In this episode of When Football Was Football on the Sports History Network, we'll look closely at the arrival of the original Chicago Bulls back in 1926. Unlike the NBA champions of almost 70 years later, these Bulls were formed to participate as members of the newly formed American Football League. And the creation of that team sent shockwaves through the existing pro football establishment in Chicago. Our story actually begins a year earlier in 1925, when the legendary Red Grange, the All-American halfback from the University of Illinois, joined the Chicago Bears immediately after his final collegiate game against Ohio State on November 21, 1925. The fact that Grange signed with a professional football team was not entirely unexpected. What was a bit shocking was the fact that George Hallis, owner of the Bears, signed Grange right after his last college game, rather than following his graduation. This appeared to be a contradiction of one of the precepts of the early NFL, that it would not dip into the collegiate ranks for players but it was George Hellas who interpreted the rule just a bit differently, and in doing so incurred the wrath of prominent members of the college football fraternity. Hellas figured that since a college player had completed his eligibility, he was then immediately eligible for professional competition. Still, the NFL did not seem concerned with the Bears' contract with the ultra-popular Grange midway through the academic year especially with the enormous visibility for the league generated by the Bears and Grange when the club departed on a pair of tours devised to take advantage of the players' nationwide reputation. In those chaotic early days of the NFL, crowds were not competitive with those attracted by college football or Major League Baseball. But the arrival of Grange changed all of that with the Bears playing before a crowd of 70,000 in New York just a few weeks after entertaining less than 2,000 in a home game with Hammond. Following the completion of those two tours, Grange and his manager, the unique and ambitious C.C. Pyle, presented Hallis with a bewildering offer that would allow Grange to play for the Bears in 1926. In this scenario, 
Grange would remain in the bear's fold, said Pyle, if he and Grange would be awarded a one-third share of the ownership of the Chicago Bears. Hallis was flabbergasted by this suggestion and ultimately refused the offer, even though he knew he would be relinquishing the biggest box office draw in the history of the early NFL. He said, one-third ownership? An equal partnership with Dutch Sternemann and me? No, no, no. A percentage of earnings, yes, that was negotiable, but a share of ownership? No. After being rebuffed in their bid to secure part ownership of the Bears, Pyle and Grange then marched into the winter meetings of the NFL in early 1926 and requested an NFL franchise of their own, specifically in New York. And Pyle was so confident that his request would be accepted that he signed a five-year lease on Yankee Stadium where his team would play its home games. But the brethren of New York Giants owner Tim Mara never blinked, and the NFL refused Pyle's request, seemingly washing its hands of the belligerent dealmaker. So, with a well-known field, but no team or league, Pyle convinced Grange to join him in establishing and supporting the new American Football League, the AFL, a direct competitor of the National Football League. Nine teams were part of the AFL, including the New York Yankees, which would be fronted by the popular Grange. In Chicago, both the Bears and the Cardinals were threatened by the presence of the freshly minted Chicago Bulls of the AFL. The Bulls then dented the armor of the Cardinals by quickly renting Comiskey Park, the recent home of the Cardinals, thus forcing the club to host its home games back in tiny Normal Park the original home field of the team when it entered the national professional ranks in 1920. For the Bears, the appearance of the Chicago Bulls posed a more subtle yet personal issue for George Hallis. Pyle and Grange attracted Joey Sternemann of the Bears to serve as the key performer and the president of the Bulls. This offer included a share of the ownership in the Chicago Bulls. Joey Sternemann, of course, was the brother of Dutch Sternemann, the partner of Hallis and co-owner of the organization. It should be noted that Joey Sternemann also owned shares of the Chicago Bears, which caused some concern for Hallis when Joey announced that he would be moving over to the Bulls in 1926. Joey resigned his position on the Bears Board of Directors on May 14, 1926, which would appear to minimize any personal conflict of interest between the Bears and the Bulls. Yet, how would it affect Dutch Sternemann? Would he be able to manage his own loyalty to the Bears while still maintaining loyalty to his brother Joey? Hallis was likely miffed that Joey Sternemann essentially betrayed him and loudly added another competitor to the now crowded battle for pro football tickets in a town that already hosted both the Bears and the Cardinals. It would be difficult to fault Joey, however, for accepting the opportunity to not only star for a professional football team, but to also be its owner as well. And after noting his own financial success with Red Grange the previous season, Hallis certainly must have feared that the lurking presence of Grange as a rival could easily impact not only his attendance, but also the very existence of the NFL. If Grange, Pyle, and their eager new league could be successful, would it drop the NFL to its knees or obliterate it completely? Behind the scenes, the arrival of Joey Sternemann and the Bulls quietly contributed to the beginning of a gradual split between Dutch Sternemann and George Hallis. 
Dallas first noticed it when the time arrived for NFL teams to plot out their schedules for the upcoming year. Unlike today, the creation of NFL schedules was rather haphazard and often adjusted during the season. When the teams gathered at the NFL meeting in Philadelphia in July of 1926 to address the upcoming league schedule, the co-owners of the Bears promptly presented their own separate plans for the Bears' 1926 schedule. Obviously, this was quite confusing to the other owners, and NFL president Joe Carr asked the other owners to decide on which representative the Bears should be as the designated voice in the schedule making. The owners sided with Hallis, who was primarily perturbed about the disagreement between Dutch and himself over the date of October 17, 1926. Hallis insisted on playing the Cardinals on that day, while Dutch preferred to meet their oldest rivals on Thanksgiving Day instead. The games with the Cardinals were always a handsome payday for both teams in Chicago, so Hallis was bewildered by the scheduling proposed by Dutch as Hallis later explained in his autobiography. He said, On my schedule, I had penciled in for that day, October 17th, a game with our old rivals, the Cardinals, a match that usually produced the biggest gate of the season. Dutch wanted to play the Cardinals on Thanksgiving Day. When other league members learned that October 17th was the day Joey Sternman had scheduled a game in Chicago between his new club and the New York Yankees starring the Great Red Grange, the reason for the differences between Dutch and me became obvious. A double bill in Chicago on the day I proposed would hurt the Bulls. Keeping the Cardinals game on Thanksgiving Day would help them. The situation caused me heartache. Dutch, Joey, and I had gone through hard times together. Now, when prosperity was here, we were divided. I was finding adversity more pleasant than prosperity. Ultimately, the Bears and Cardinals game was played on October 17th and attracted a crowd of 12,000. However, the Chicago Bulls hosted Red Grange and the Yankees on that same day and drew 17,000 people. Would the AFL be able to maintain the surprising attendance? Could this new circuit doom the NFL? Unfortunately, unless the star, star power of Red Grange was making an appearance, attendance at other AFL games, including those in Chicago, was meager. Only four teams remained in the AFL by early November of 1926, and the league itself failed to return in 1927. Eventually, Joey Sternman returned to the Bears, as did Red Grange, but the partnership between Hallis and Dutch Sternman was shaky. The pair decided to relinquish their co-coaching duties in 1930, and Hallis finally bought out Sternman in 1932. Today, when we hear the name of the Chicago Bulls, we quickly remember the magical ear of Michael Jordan and the six NBA championships the Bulls collected. Few, if any, have any knowledge of the original Chicago Bulls, the child of an ambitious gridiron family known as the American Football League, which has largely been forgotten. But for that one shiny moment in 1926, the Chicago Bulls certainly caused some concern for the rival National Football League. Thank you for joining us on this episode of When Football Was Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.
We at the Sports History Network are so glad to introduce to you a new addition to our lineup, Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast. It's a weekly podcast that focuses on the history and memorabilia of North American football since its inception in 1869. It's hosted by Bob Swick, the publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and Joe Squires, a longtime contributor to that magazine. The podcast was launched in 2017 and has over 150 episodes that you can listen to now on a Sports History Network, as well as your favorite podcast provider. So join Bob and Joe as they go through football history, talking about the memorabilia and the great legendary players and games of the American Gridiron on the Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast.